0: I invite you to join with me uh, in turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46, Genesis chapter 46, as together we will be reading verses 1 through 27, the first part of the chapter, and learning about Jacob, whom God had renamed Israel. Together we will be reading about how Jacob uh, traveled down to Egypt with the rest of the family on this, uh, in this convoy that Joseph had sent to pick him up. But before we uh, turn our attention to God's word, let's once again approach the throne of grace and ask for his blessing. Sovereign Lord, as we do come into your presence this evening, I do pray that you would be the light of our minds, that you would guide us, that you would help me, O Lord, to divide your word aright. I do not wish to say anything that goes against your word or misleads your people. So, Lord, help me to stay to the, the true path, the old paths that will lead to a sure understanding and knowledge of the word. But do not let these things merely pass in one ear and out the other. Lord, it is a great problem that we have. We hear things and then we go away and we forget. We want, O Lord, to be able to apply the truths that we learn to our daily lives. But that can't happen, Lord, unless you work in our hearts, unless you change us and make us willing to act upon what we know. I pray that you would do that this evening. Oh Lord, convict us, convert us, change us, and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 46, and starting with verse 1, I do remind you this is the word of the Lord. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the night vision, in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, and their wives in the carts, which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul. The, the son of a uh, Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Sheila, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulon were Sered, Elon, and Jahiel and Jaleel. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padnaram, with his daughter Dinah. All the uh, persons, his sons and his daughters, were thirty-three. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arade, and Areli. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Isui, Bariah, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah were Heber and Malkiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Bila, Bikar, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, uh, eh, sorry, Ehi Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan was Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jezeel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilem. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. And she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, as we read at the end of the, the last chapter, Jacob, or sorry, Joseph sends a convoy to Canaan to pick up his father Joseph, and all of the other members of the family and to transport them from the place where there is nothing but famine and death to a place of plenty where the Lord has provided for them. He had made the point to his brothers at length, do not be afraid, don't let uh, all these misgivings that you might have or self-accusations overtake you along the way. Please understand, I understand myself why the Lord did this, why it was that you ended up selling me into slavery in Egypt. It was because he planned to save many alive. It was through this sad providence that great good has come about. So he is happy at the idea that his entire family is now going to be transported to Egypt. Joseph uh, is sending, of course, for Jacob, but Jacob is at first skeptical whether his son is alive until he sees this uh, Egyptian uh, wagon train and he believes Uh, At that point, he knows he will see his beloved son, Joseph, one more time before he dies. But leaving still, going away from Canaan, is going to be difficult for Jacob. And that's because this has been his home since he returned from serving his uncle Laban in Haran many years ago. This is the place that he would have associated with his family, his children growing up, the place where his livestock had grazed. He would have remembered that God also had told his father Isaac not to go to Egypt in a time of famine. Uh, We saw that in chapter 26. So there has to be in the back of his head uh, a thought Is it really the case that I'm supposed to go to Egypt, even if my beloved son Joseph is calling me, when God had made it so very clear that we were supposed to stay in the land of Canaan again and again? And there were all of these covenant promises that God had made that emphasized the fact that Canaan and not Egypt was going to be the land that God would give to Jacob and his descendants. This is the land. So should we really be getting up and moving to Egypt? It's also very possible that, of course, that, uh, in fact, I would, I would guess that he did remember that his forefather Abraham had been uh, given word by God in Genesis fifteen thirteen. There the Lord had said to Abraham, then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So, He had to be thinking, well, if we go down to Egypt, this is gonna be the land where my family will be afflicted for 400 years. That's not exactly enticing, even if they do come out with great possessions. Then too, there were just human issues that would have been affecting him. It was the place that he'd called home, as I said. He would have been familiar with all of the hills, all of the valleys, all of the wells, all of the seasons, all of the watering places. And he would have at least known the neighbors who were around him. You get used to uh, a certain climate, a certain people, and so on, and then changing from that becomes very difficult. And then, too, also, there was an emotional attachment. All of his relatives, including his favorite wife, were buried in Canaan. He had literal attachments to the soil of Canaan. So uh, it's good that he stopped at Beersheba. They are traveling on their way down to Egypt. They start at Hebron. And they go down to Sheba and then they're going to make their way along the coastal road to Egypt. It's not a long trip, but he stops at this place. This was the place that Abraham had made uh, his covenant with Abimelech. It was a place where Abraham had planted a tamarisk tree. No doubt that tamarisk tree was now very large and where both Abraham and Isaac, his forefathers, had dwelt for many years. It was also the place that Isaac had left. Uh, or sorry, it was also the place that Jacob had left when he began his long journey all the way to Haran. Um, It was a place that he was familiar with, a place that would have been associated with his childhood. And after Beersheba, it's all wilderness all the way to Egypt. It was also the place, though, that his father Isaac had built an altar to sacrifice to God. And now Jacob uses that altar. He goes and he makes sacrifices to God. Now, no doubt there would have been sacrifices that were being given, sacrifices of thanksgiving. Remember that this man had spent years and years thinking that his son Joseph was dead, torn apart by beasts. Now he learns that not only is he alive, but he is the second in command of Egypt and that God's covenant promises to him. And the dreams that he gave to Joseph are now coming to pass. So he gives thanks to God for this. And that's something that we should be doing, beloved, when, as I said before, uh, we discussed this on Wednesday when we had our day of thanksgiving, when God answers our prayers. We should give thanks to him. We should be at least as zealous to give him thanks as we were to implore him for what we had need of before. But it's so often the case that we come to him and we beg him for something that we have need of. He grants it to us or he does something that's amazingly abundantly above anything that we could even think of. And we just go, well, that's nice. And then we go on to the next request. We don't think about how much we owe to God, but Isaac did. He, uh, or rather Jacob did. So Jacob uses that altar and God appears to Jacob in a vision and he calls him by name. Now God had done this Earlier, you remember, for Jacob, when Jacob had been at Bethel, he had been on his way to his uncle Laban's land, and there he had had that amazing vision. And you remember, he had seen in a dream, he'd had this vision of a what coming between heaven and earth? There was a, a ladder, right? So Jacob's ladder is the, uh, is the way that we refer to it. And what were ascending and descending upon that ladder? Angels, right, and then who identifies themselves in the New Testament with that ladder? Jesus, okay, the ladder is a vision of the necessary connection between heaven and earth. The fall had broken that connection. A holy God cannot dwell with a sinful people. Jesus is the one who was ordained to restore the connection between heaven and earth to bridge the gap between us and the Lord. So he had that vision. And uh, God had said to him there, he said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seeds, (coughs) sorry, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So even then, the Lord had reassured him, don't worry, I will bring you back to this place. There's always this, you'll be coming back to Canaan, you'll be coming back to Canaan. So even as he's leaving to go to uh, stay with his uncle in Syria, God had told him, you'll be coming back. And now once again, God appears to him and says the same thing. He announces, Uh, much the same way as he had spoken to Isaac and uh, Jacob earlier. He says he is the God of his fathers, and he tells him not to be afraid of Egypt. You remember Abraham had been terribly afraid of Egypt. It had led him to lie, to tell him to, uh, he had told Sarah say to everybody in Egypt that we meet, you're my sister, because he was afraid of what might happen to him. The Lord says, you don't need to be afraid when you go down to Egypt. God, in essence, has been saying, I will prepare the way for you. This is in my will. You are going to Egypt because I'm telling you to go to Egypt, and I wouldn't tell you to go someplace where you were going to be undone, someplace where you would be harmed. He then reaffirms, these great covenant promises that he made again and again. One of the things that we see in the Bible is that the great promises that God makes to us and to our forefathers, he, he keeps repeating them. Why? Because we have a tendency to doubt. We have a tendency to forget. And we remember that even in the New Testament, the Lord gave us uh, these wonderful signs to reassure us, to reaffirm the promises that he made. One of the most constant ones that we see on a monthly basis, of course, is the Lord's Supper reminding us of the Lord's sacrifice for us, reminding us once again of the fact that it is finished, that everything that was necessary for our redemption had been done by Jesus Christ on the cross. Why does he do that? Because we need those reminders, because we are a doubting people. We are a forgetful people. So once again, God appears to Jacob, his servant, and he reminds him. He reaffirms. He reassures. It's a good practice. We should do the same thing in our own teaching, and particularly parents, we should be reassuring our children on a regular basis about God's promises. We should be showing them the way that God has kept his promises in our lives. I don't know about you, but God has made wonderful promises to me in scripture. He's kept every single one of them. I can't think of one way in my 53 years of life that the Lord made a promise to me that he did not make good on or that he will not eventually make good on. There are some promises that have not yet been realized, but I'm not yet at the point where I can realize them. I do not yet have my celestial body. This one is still degenerating, but he has given me his reassurances again and again that someday I will. I have no reason to doubt him based upon all of the promises that he has made good in the past. And so he makes these covenant promises once again to Jacob. This is not the first time He is saying them again, but he gives added emphasis to them. One, he says to Jacob, he is going to make Israel, that is, Jacob and his descendants, a great nation in Egypt. This will be a land of plenty. It will be a place that they can grow more numerous than they could ever have grown in Canaan. They are going to be given the best part of the land, Goshen by Pharaoh. And there they will have abundant crops. They won't have to worry about famine and drought. And they will be able to increase and increase and become as the dust of the earth, as the Lord had said. So that's the first promise he makes. The second promise that he makes is he says, I will go down with you to Egypt. It's not like I'm sending you. I'm not, you know, you're not being sent TDY. Go to Egypt and do the things that I I want you to do there and come back and tell me how it was. No, rather he says, I will be with you. As you go down to Egypt, Jacob, I will not leave you nor forsake you. I will watch over you. Now, when God is with us, we need fear no evil. Even if we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we know that the Lord is with us, that he comforts us, and that he has always kept his promise never to leave nor to forsake his children. So he says, I'll go down with you. That's a great confidence builder, isn't it? I don't know about you, but when I was younger, it was, uh, it was a, a, an incredibly frightening prospect to be sent into a new place. I remember the first time uh, that, and in England, uh, at least in the early 70s when I was being sent, um, when you were sent off to uh, a public school, by which we mean a private school, um, your parents didn't go with you. You, know, you walked in the door. And the first time I walked in was three. Uh, at the age of three, I was terrified. It's absolutely terrified. The idea that my parents would not be with me was uh, something that I, I remember, um, even at that, that young age, was something that uh, made me scream and cry and so on. Uh, but the Lord says, you don't need to scream and cry. I'm going to go with you. Trust me, I'll be with you all the way down there. Thirdly, he says, I will surely bring you up again. I'm not going to abandon you in this place. This is not going to be your final dwelling place. You won't be living as strangers in a strange land forever. You will be down there for a time, but I will bring you back. Now, this obviously concerns his descendants. They will not be absorbed into Egypt. This is a very important thing. You will not simply become quasi-Egyptian. You will be brought back into Canaan and you will be brought back in as a separate nation. One of the things that I hope you will have noticed is as we've gone through the Torah, there are all of these rules and regulations that are set out for God's people that have a specific intent of keeping them separate from the nations around them so that they will be a particular people. One of the wonderful things about going into Egypt, and it wouldn't seem like a wonderful thing at the time, was the fact that their religion, the things that they ate, even their trade, this was an abomination to the Egyptians. It's one of the reasons why Pharaoh said, well, we'll send you over here in Goshen so you can be by yourselves and not within the general Egyptian populace. And so they would have that separate identity as the Hebrew people, as the people of God. Even though their worship was an abomination to the Egyptians and they couldn't worship openly, yet they would still remain a separate people there. I will bring you into this place and I will bring you up again. Now, there's also a lesser promise that's being made to Joseph that we'll see um, being, well, we won't see together because we're not going to read Exodus uh, immediately after Genesis. But we will see that Joseph, after he dies, his body is embalmed and he is brought back to lie with his fathers in Canaan when the people of God come out of Egypt and go back into Canaan. So Jacob and Joseph are both going to, well, actually, no, I'm so sorry. Joseph is taken out of Egypt in uh, Exodus. Jacob actually is going to be buried in Canaan by his own son, Joseph. Uh, He will, as he said, lay his hands on his eyes. That's a reference to the closing of the eyes after they die. And that's the next promise. Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Joseph will be with you when you die and it will be he who closes your eyes after you die. He will be the one who performs your funeral rites. He will be the one who carries your bones up out of Egypt and into Canaan and buries you with your relatives. That is a great reassurance for the old man. He does not want to be separated from his family, even in death. One of the saddest, uh, I mean, it's not a big sad thing for me, one of the things that made me sad, um, when we were establishing the church here, we looked at the, the property and so on, And one of the things that I wanted to do, I wanted to build into the church from the very beginning. Um, You don't see it in many modern church buildings because it's considered a a downer for modern congregations. I wanted a graveyard, actually, uh, for the members of the church. So you could have the church triumphant and the church militant, you know, side by side and continuing on that way. Um, also, at least I'd have a place to lay my weary bones down uh, within Fayetteville already set out. And that would be also hopefully something that would defer a lot of it's, it's expensive to bury people these days. and You probably all know that, but it would be uh, a wonderful service that we provide to our members. But we just couldn't find a plot of land that would fit within the restrictions and stuff like that. It is a wonderful thing to think, though, that you will rise up with those whom you have lived with on Judgment Day. On that last day when the trumpet sounds, you will be raised up with those whom you had uh, lived with in this life and worshipped God with. And so Jacob is given that reassurance. And indeed, Jacob is carried back into uh, Canaan and he is buried. And then eventually Joseph will be carried back by his descendants into Canaan as well. So, Jacob is able to make a decision and to do so in good faith. The Lord has given him conviction and reassurance, so they will go. And as the patriarch of the family, he now commands, we are going to go back. Even though he is 130 years old at this point of traveling to Egypt, he's willing to do so. Uh, obviously, he can't walk that distance, so he travels in the carts that Joseph had sent for the family with the women and children. Now, Jacob doesn't hedge his bets. Note this as well as the patriarch, he calls all of his sons and all of his daughters to go. He doesn't leave an outpost, so to speak, in Canaan. He says, we're all going together. His sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt, and then we are given this long list of his family members, so that many thousands of years later, a pastor in Fayetteville could gradually mispronounce their names for uh, a period of time and torture them. And I'm sure they were all, if they were here, would be going, "Oh my word!" You know, thank you, Andariyo. <laughs> that was that was an amazing reading of our name. So, in any event. All of them uh, who went there, starting with Jacob, who is called Israel by God, you remember that rem- means God prevails, are listed here. Uh, the people of Israel will hereafter be known by their uh, forefathers' names, by the 12 tribes. So we'll have Judah, and Benjamin, and Gad, and Asher, and Dan, and Naphtali, and Issachar, and so on. These will be the names that they know, are known by, but uh, we have a total of 70 listed here. Now, holy mackerel, there has been so much contention about the, uh, the numbers here. As, uh, as you go through them and add them up and so on, people have pointed out uh, only two women are listed uh, in here. And they don't understand why it's uh, Dinah and Sarah are the only women who are specifically listed uh, amongst that number. But keep in mind the number includes not just the family members who traveled on earth into Egypt, but it also includes people who were not yet born. Judah's two grandsons, Benjamin's two sons uh, are mentioned. And the idea is that they are already present in the loins of their fathers. And so therefore they are traveling into Egypt as well. It also included Joseph, who is actually already in Egypt and his two sons, um, Ur and Onan uh, are listed here. They're already dead. Um, And additionally, Dinah, is mentioned, but she's apparently not counted. I don't know why. Uh, interestingly enough, Dinah is never again mentioned in Scripture, uh, which probably sadly means that she had no offspring. But uh, in any event, uh, the, the working out the numbers is, is very difficult. Uh, Seventy, though, is given as the round number for the family. In other words, God is saying about 70 people uh, who are the family of, Jacob traveled into Egypt. It's a number of completeness. Seven uh, in scripture reoccurring is the great number of completion. Seven times 10 is is an idea of complete completeness. Now, uh, the number obviously does not include all the slaves who are members of their households, uh, but it's important to note the reason why we're being directed to the fact that it was about 70 people is the fact that this is a small family. I don't know about you, but I've seen pictures of family reunions on Facebook that had way more than 70 people. As a matter of fact, our our morning worship, even on a a holiday weekend at this point, usually includes more than 70 people. Uh, Certainly, Pharaoh, when he invited the family of Joseph to dwell in the land, couldn't have any idea that this family of 70 was going to become a million in, in just a few centuries. And yet, from this this small group, this, this 70 souls who went down into Egypt, would come the savior of the world. Why is that so important? Well, we remember that it's not the great things, the great nations that God uses in order to fulfill his redemptive purposes. It's usually the small groups. You remember, I mean, the great story of Gideon's army that we find in Judges. He starts out with a mass that's smaller than that of the Midianites, and then he gradually he whittles them down. He goes from 35,000 to a ridiculously small number, 300, one that can't possibly prevail. Why does God do it? To show that his hand is behind things. This is not the work of man. This is not the mighty Roman Empire. This is just a small band of Jews from the land of Canaan. And yet, these people are going to be the world changers. Not just the world changers, the universe changers. Everything is going to depend upon this small, and admittedly up until this point, kind of dysfunctional family that is moving down into Egypt. From them will come the savior of the world, the the man who determines how we date, time. I know today in the academy people insist on us saying BCE before common era and CE common era but we all know that the zero date what is the zero date? It's the birth of Christ. No matter how we want to change the way we word it, it still all hinges on Jesus. He's the one who determines everything and this is the family from which he arose. It's an amazing thing. Well, that should be reassuring to us in a day of small things. I mean, the world thinks nothing at all about it. I mean, we're not even on their radar. We, become, we belong to a denomination, the ARP. When I mention the ARP, people look at you blankly and go, who? You go, the PCA, do you know about them? Uh, Presbyterians? Uh, Christians? Oh, yeah, I know Christians. Okay, all right, so let's, let's come down a little, and then we'll gradually get to, to where we are. The world just doesn't even know about us, doesn't acknowledge us. The world in the ancient world, very few people knew about this family, unless they lived right next door to them, or they were in Egypt at this point in time. And yet from this family comes the great world changer. We need to remember that. Now, the question needs to be asked, or at least it seems to me it needs to be asked, why did God want them in Egypt anyway? Why was it necessary? Couldn't they have become a great nation in Canaan? Couldn't he have averted the famine or sustained them somehow, sent birds to feed them as he sent Elijah or something like that? Well, of course he could have. He could have miraculously preserved them within Canaan and so on. But there were certain things that could only happen if they went down to Egypt. First, we see obviously God's amazing redeeming grace in the way that they were brought into Egypt and then even more so in the way that they were brought out of Egypt. Also, it shows it it will be a massive uh, and incredible display of God's power, first over human power. At the time that they're brought out, Egypt is going to be the great power in the Mediterranean, and yet their power is going to be shown to be nothing at all compared to the power of God. Secondly, he will display with 10 plagues his power over all the so-called gods, the most important gods of this superpower. And he will show his people, it doesn't matter what the world does to you. It doesn't matter what an Egypt, a Russia, a China, a France, a Cuba, a whatever, a Nazi Germany, a Soviet Union, what they do to you. Oh, my people, I can preserve you. I can bring you out. And there is no prison so dark, so dank that I'm not there and able to do with you what I will. And so he's going to show them his redeeming power and his redeeming grace. He's going to bring them out of a situation that seems impossible and make it possible for them to have the promised things that he had given them. Secondly, it's a re-emphasis that there are pilgrim people. Moving into Egypt, this is not going to be their nation. They're going to dwell there, but it's not going to be theirs. They're not Egyptians. There's no Egyptian patriotism amongst the Hebrews. And that's something that we need to remember as well, because we have this tendency, don't we, to associate ourselves indelibly with the land that we live in. It's one of the things that I'm I'm very grateful for, that our session has never asked to put a flag in the sanctuary. Now, while we are called upon to be good citizens of the land that we live in and to serve and to pray for the king and so on, let us remember that we are pilgrims and sojourners in this land. This world is not our own. And let us remember also that America and the kingdom of God are not coterminous. This is just one of the many nations that the Lord has, has brought up. Now, it's been particularly blessed because it did have so much Christian influence within it. But let us remember that America is blessed to the degree to which there is a Christian influence in it. And if the Christian influence were to disappear entirely, this nation would be as cursed as Babylon. I have to tell you. And no more worthy of continuing on. Neither would it. That's something we need to learn. If Christianity is ever stamped out in this nation, and we of course pray that it will not happen, that will be the end of this nation. Ronald Reagan, who I don't often quote obviously from the pulpit, was uh, right when he said, if this nation ever forgets that they are one nation under God, they will be a nation gone under. And that is a, a truism. But what did this remind them of? It reminded them of the fact that they're a pilgrim people. They're fundamentally different from the world and they are seeking, rather, a different land, all right? We ourselves are seeking a different land. We're seeking what? We're seeking a heavenly country. You and I are seeking a place that we can truly call our own. We can say we are citizens. You and I really are citizens of heaven. We are citizens already of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for a place where there is no more death, no more war, no more disease, no more sin, no more idolatry, no more of the things that afflict us. And we are being told we are traveling towards that. This people were being told literally they were, being, uh, they were going to be traveling towards their home. But this place is not their home. They might experience joy there for a time, but nonetheless, it was not the place that they were supposed to be dwelling in forever. Also, being sent to Egypt would force them to cling to God's word and depend upon him. It would make them absolutely dependent upon him. There is a tendency amongst even God's people, certainly there's a tendency amongst the people of the world, to cling to their idols, to cling to the things of this physical world. They cling, I mean, what did the Spartans trust in? Absolutely. Not just their gods. They trusted in their military power, their their army, The Athenians trusted in their wooden walls. What were their wooden walls? Their navy, okay? And each of these nations, both the Spartans and the Athenians, were eventually undone because the things that they put their trust in could not save them. The Edomites trusted in the fact that they lived in an incredibly rocky and mountainous area that was very difficult to attack. They were like eagles in their crags. And yet, Obadiah 1.3 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, speaking to the Edomites. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? The answer is God, whenever he wants to. And indeed, he did. They trusted in things of this world that could not save them. The Hebrews are being taught to trust in the God of this world who can save them. Either you rely on him or you have no hope because you are a slave people living in another nation. You are entirely under the dominion of Pharaoh without God. And so even when he begins to kill their children, yet the Lord does not abandon them. He saves them. He brings them out. He delivers them. They are forced to do this by faith. That's one of the reasons why I think we are constantly being reminded of our own weirdness within this nation, our own separation, so that we'll depend more upon God. We prayed today for the Nigerian Christians, and we prayed for our Chinese brothers and sisters. They are reminded daily of how peculiar they are. How different from the surrounding people they are and how persecuted they are and how their only hope they can't depend upon the army they can't depend upon the police they can't depend upon anything in this world who do they have to depend upon god God. he's their only hope and that's what these people were being reminded of as well it's what we should remember that our hope lies in christ or we are hopeless ultimately You and I, though, if we put our confidence in God, are putting our confidence in a covenant-keeping God who has never let his people down, who has never left them, never forsaken them, and who is accomplishing all of his covenant promises. Remember that. As we go through the Word, we see promise after impossible promise being made by God, and yet every single one of them being fulfilled, Adam. impossible things. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. Remember that. And so, too, it is possible for you and I, sinners, separated from a holy God, dead in sins and trespasses when we were born into this world, to be saved by his redemptive purposes, by sending his son Jesus into the world. You and I were saved against all possibility by an impossible salvation, by a savior who was willing to do that which we could not do for ourselves. Remember that our hope ultimately lies here and hereafter in Christ and in his completed work. So depend upon the God who keeps his covenant promises, and you are in the best of all positions, no matter where you dwell. Let's go before him now. God, our father, we do thank you, Lord, for your goodness to your people in every age, for your covenant-keeping faithfulness, for the fact that you are the one who delivers your people. And we thank you, O Lord, even for the gift of faith that unites us to Christ that allows us to believe and to understand your word and allows us to take up our cross day after day, to die to self and to follow after Christ our Savior. Help us to see your hand in history and to recognize that without you, we are without hope. While you may give us certain blessings during our time here on earth, let us never depend upon them. Let us not be like the Edomites who depended upon cliff walls to protect them. Instead, let us put our faith and our trust in you above all. We pray these things in Jesus' name.